generation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, we just uh, we love you. We thank you. Um, we thank you so much for just getting us all here safely today that we can be together. Um, we so often take our safety for granted, and uh, we just see in the world that that's not always the case. And we just take it for granted because we're under your wing and we trust you, God. So we just want to give you thanks for the safety that you give us. And uh, we just thank you for the worship this morning, for preparing our hearts to hear your message. And uh, we pray for Brandon as... He gives the message that you've shown him to us today that uh, you would just provide him with clarity in speaking and that you would uh, open us to hear your word, God. Um, we just pray that we would take our the message that we get today from this and we would just uh, hear it with a humble heart. We would take it with us into the world, God, and just be servants of it uh, for you. Um, we just pray all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Luke did awesome. He wasn't sure what to do with the mic, though. He's like, oh, Aaron. Uh, uh, uh. It didn't distract you, though. You, you read through it really well. Good job. Okay, so we are in Romans chapter 8. Look at this. this the whole front row, full. What's the matter with this side? Look at this. You guys are, like, really cozy over there. Yeah, it's nice. I'm going to have to spend a lot of time over there today. Um, so... It is really good to see you guys. I love you. Um, we're going to get into it. We've got a, uh, a lot to look at today. And, um, well, it's been pretty sober this morning, hasn't it? I mean, just the worship, the, the, the tone of the worship. And I'm sorry, it's not going to get any livelier. Uh, we're going to look at God's Word, and it is going to be a little bit sober today. Romans chapter 8 has just been kind of difficult. It's one of the hardest passages in uh, the entire New Testament to study, and so likewise to teach, and, and so, um, but there's a lot to learn here. Now, I'm going to just give us a little bit of background, because it has been a few weeks. We took, we took three weeks uh, to focus on, the, uh, on discipleship and the four goals, and who was refreshed by that time, just talking about what discipleship is and what it should be, man. I was so encouraged to study that and be with you in that. Um, but we're going to get right back into Romans, and we're going to keep moving forward. Okay, so I need you to be ready, because there will be some, some, some difficult passages that we run into today, and I want to make sure that we understand it, so pray for me. Now, where we are in Romans chapter 8, I want to contextualize it just a little bit. In Romans chapter 7, Paul finishes that portion of, uh, of, of Romans by, by telling us about how difficult it is for him 
to live out his Christianity. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. It's telling us how often he finds it, uh, it, it hard because in his mind, he knows what's right. And yet his, sometimes his heart is, is going the opposite direction. And sometimes when his heart wants to do what's right, his mind is distracted. And what he wants to do, he can't. And he struggles to find the, 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 um, the unction to do what's right all the time. And, and a lot of us are in that same place. And so, man, the timing is, is crucial here. The, the timing of Romans chapter 8 for our ministry, I believe, is very, very crucial. And I'm going to ask you, just, just rhetorically, I'm going to ask you, you think about this in your hearts. How many of you are right now struggling with something that seems egregious? It's, there's something that you've, you've recognized as a pattern of sin in your life. Something that... that has brought you repeatedly into dark places, into times of depression, into sadness, and maybe even right this moment, you're dealing with that. And, and, and if I'm going to be real honest, because we're a family, I'm going to be honest with you. I've had many, many conversations over the last month with people who have entered into seasons of depression and frustration and darkness where they feel like they can't do anything right. Okay? And man... I want to tell you that Paul has a good word for you today. That you don't have to dwell in that place. That that doesn't have to be what you identify yourself as, as your mistakes, as your, as your hang-up. And you know what? Sometimes, listen, let's be real honest. Sometimes it's just our circumstances that hold us up. It isn't even anything that we're doing. It isn't even some sort of sin. It isn't some sort of personal struggle. It's our circumstances that have come up against us and we feel oppressed. Where even if we wanted to do what's right, we can't because our circumstance is preventing us. And so here we are, we face, we look, we look right into Romans chapter 8, and Paul is giving us the solution to that. Now, now let, me, um, let me paint a picture for you. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration. Okay? My slides are ahead of me. You're good, you're good. You know what you're doing. You got it, you got it. Yeah, um, now, my daughter is almost four years old. Now, my daughter... You know what? When she was born, I prayed a lot that she wouldn't just be some stereotypical girl. Like, one of the things I prayed about was that she wouldn't like pink. I pray really specifically, guys. Okay? Is that, that pink, that she wouldn't like pink because I didn't want her to feel like she had to be like everybody else. You know, girls just, they like, seem to just love pink. All those little girls and all the pink. And, and you know what? Uh, pink is everywhere in my house. God said no to that prayer. Sometimes he does that. And, um, and I find uh, glitter. Yeah, okay, so last Sunday, I, uh, I went to the restroom, and I looked in the mirror, and there was glitter right here. And I didn't feel too bad. You know why? Because I noticed, anybody else noticed that Kenny Morgan also had glitter on him? <laughs> on Sunday last week, no one noticed that, just me. But I felt good about it. Knowing that he also had glitter. It's just a part of, I guess, having girls. There's glitter everywhere. And, um, but, but here's the deal. One of the stereotypes that my daughter falls into is that she hates bugs. Okay, she hates bugs. Now, my son likes bugs, especially this time of year, because bugs are everywhere. And June bugs, in particular, are fascinating, because they shed that funny shell, right? And the, the cicadas, or whatever we call them. And, and, and so they're, they're buzzing and making all those sounds, and my son loves it. Okay, and so what he does is he gets those shells, 
And he takes them and he puts them on people's clothes, you know, because the claws will stick to things. And so we play this funny game where he'll, he'll sneak up behind me. He'll take one of those d- dead shells and he'll put it on my shirt. We'll go for walks and it'll be on my shirt for like 10 minutes before I find out. And then when I find out, he thinks it's hilarious, right? <laughs> my daughter, on the other hand, does not find this hilarious. She doesn't find it funny at all. And uh, she freaks out. And so this last week, uh, in the middle of the night, about, about 1 in the morning, okay, I hear her crying. And I get up and I go into her. Why are you laughing about that? Have you got Do you know where I'm going? Brian is like twisting. He's back there laughing. His daughter was crying. <laughs> you know where I'm going. Okay, so, so I go into her room. And she is insistent that there is a bug in her room. Now, if there was a bug, I mean, she wouldn't be able to see it. It's dark. Right? So it's nonsense. She dreamt that there was a bug. She swears it was a bee, specifically. But you know what I realized is what, what was happening was that my daughter was afraid uh, because my son had put a dead bug on her. You know, you know, this had stuck with her, and it carried over into her dreams, and it carried over into the night. And so what was happening was bugs that aren't even alive were haunting my daughter at night. <laughs> so it's like vain imagination upon vain imagination. It's like... There's nothing to be afraid of at all. And you know what I realized? That that's a lot like our sin. Is the thing that God has declared dead. The thing that has no authority or power over us. The thing that that, that God has said that, that he's taken care of, that his son Jesus Christ took care of for us, seems to somehow plague us in the middle of the night. It haunts us. It haunts us in our dreams and in our thoughts. We find ourselves so preoccupied with the things that we don't want to do. That we don't recognize the fact that we are dead to all those things. And that God has made us to be victorious. And that he set us apart for so much. You know, it's not good enough for a Christian just to survive and get by from day to day. It's not good enough. When Jesus Christ has made us to thrive in this world through the grace of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so what we have here is a question for ourselves. Are you haunted by your sin? Are you living from one defeat to another? And many of you are. You know that you are. At least you have been. And so what we get is, is from Romans chapter 8 is an, is an antidote to our struggles and to our oppression and to our circumstances. So I'm going to give you three points to de- defeat sin and guilt before we get into Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 today, before we get to the specifics of what we're going to study today. I want to give you three, because I feel it's fitting for review. I want to give you three things that you need to know in order to overcome sin. Okay? And the first thing is, you must acknowledge that sin does not own you. Sin doesn't owe you. Jesus Christ owns you. You've been adopted into his family. God the Father owns you. Sin does not own you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us this in the very first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. And you know what? A lot of you take uh, uh, all this time in your life to condemn yourself repeatedly over and over again. You're so preoccupied with your sin. What you're actually doing is condemning yourself. When Jesus Christ has said you're not condemned. You're not condemned. So do not condemn yourself. 
For the law of the spirit uh, of life is Christ Jesus, uh, uh, of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from that. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful uh, flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Your sin, Jesus Christ condemned, so that you wouldn't have to. The things and the weaknesses that, that you see in your life, you don't have to be obsessed with those things, because Jesus Christ killed those things on the cross. Jump down to verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And so here's a key point. If sin doesn't own you, then you must acknowledge that that messing up never means defeat. Okay, so when I say messing up, you know what I'm talking about, right? How is it you find yourself messing up? Right? Now, to be real honest, in the season that we find ourselves in, a lot of you are obsessed with relationships, and you have, let's be real honest, sexual preoccupations. Things, the things that are occupying your mind are the things that you know that are, that are sexual sins that you've been dealing with. Struggles that just keep coming up and you keep fighting them. And you think that if you beat yourself up about it enough, that somehow, that's gonna, that, 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 that somehow you'll be either made set free from it or at least, at least you'll chastise yourself to the point that you'll be right in God's eyes. That if I just beat myself up enough, that somehow I'll see myself the way God sees me. And it's so twisted. It's, so, it's messed up. We don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. And so what happens is when we mess up, we feel defeated. When we trip up or we get hung up on something, we feel defeated. But messing up does not mean defeat. Because God has already won. He's made you a victor. Two, point number two. The other thing you need to know to defeat sin and guilt is you must rely on the help of the church. You must rely on the help of the church. We all find ourselves in weaknesses and infirmities. And God has given us one another to deal with those things. To stir into one another remembrance, to provoke one another to righteousness. But sometimes just to lend uh, an ear, just to be there for each other, to love each other. To be knit together to practice unity. Romans 15.1 says that we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so for those of us who are feeling strong this week, we should be bearing the infirmities of those who feel weak this week. That's that We have to be about that, Kaya. And I'm talking, this isn't, this isn't an issue of maturation. Okay, We're not talking about the leaders need to be there for the people who are new. We're talking about people who are strong in the faith, being there for those who feel weak, who are struggling. This is what we're about. And so my question to you who are struggling, why are you hiding your sin? Why are you bearing it alone? Why haven't you gone to someone? Why haven't you sat down with someone and confessed the sin so that someone can pray on your behalf? Someone can be there and be a warrior for you and be an intercessor for you. See, part of the problem here is that many of us who struggle like patterns of sin, sins that just seem to keep creeping up, <clears throat> we struggle with a pattern of sin. We, do not be- we don't believe that we can truly be helped. And so we don't go to anybody. 
Because we don't think that they can help us. Because we beat ourselves down so much. So we don't go to our brothers and sisters. Or we, we don't uh, uh, do it from a position of faith. So, okay, okay. All right. Some of you have made, have made a habit of going to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But because you keep struggling with your sin, you've stopped. Because in your mind it hasn't worked. So you don't do it anymore because you don't want to bother so-and-so. And let me say this to you. That's not modeled for us anywhere in Scripture. See, someone who has a heart for Jesus Christ and wants to move forward in growth, we believe that God can deliver them and or give them a way in faith to overcome the difficulties that they face. And if we believe that, then we're going to, we're going to do it the way God asks us to. And we're going to go to one another and we're going to confess our sins. That's what we're going to do. That's who we need to be. And so do not let the lie come up against you to the point where you've decided, you know what, I already went to so-and-so and it didn't work. Well, you know what? <clears throat> it works. It does work. It does work. Prayer works. Amen. Accountability works. The Word of God works. And it doesn't work. Listen to me very carefully. I'm saying this in love. It's an issue of your faith. If you don't find it working, it's because you lack the faith to trust the Lord that He's going to do it even in the midst of struggle, pain, difficulty, whatever it might be. His objective is one thing. And that's what we're going to get to in our message here today. But I want to point out one more, one more thing. Okay, one more thing you need. You must rely on the help of the Spirit. And that is what Romans chapter 8 is primarily about, is relying on the help of the Spirit. See, God has a purpose, and that purpose is for us in the Bible. And he's given us a framework, and that's the church, that's the local church. But he's given us a guide, and that's the Spirit, to assist you in your walk. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do you believe that or not? <clears throat> do you believe that or not? For those of you struggling with sin, that's a pattern of sin, do you believe that or not? Or is, just, is God just lying to you? <clears throat> if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And listen to the rest of this. And the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that, that ye cannot do the things that you would. Does it sound like Paul? Remember what he's saying in chapter 7? You can't do the things that you would. But, it, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. You're not under bondage, and you're not under death. Does that make sense? We need the Holy Spirit. And so if you are led of the Spirit, the law of sin cannot oppress you beyond its grave. It's just like my daughter. If this is true, if you're walking in the Spirit, your sins cannot haunt you in the middle of the night. I'm, spe- I'm speaking truth this morning. I don't often ask for amens, but right now I just feel like I need to ask for an amen here. Because I, because I know for a fact that, that many of us, you can you just admit it right now in your heart and in your mind, that this is what you're struggling with from day to day. And I'm telling you, Romans chapter 8 is giving you the solution. <clears throat> you, can re- you can live in the reality of the Spirit. So let's, talk, let's review real quick. What does Romans chapter 8 tell us? Because some of us have forgotten. Romans chapter 8, in verses 1 through 11, tells us and declares for us 
that the weak are made strong through what Jesus Christ did. That we have access to him. That we are his children, that he's made us victors. That in our weakness, he's made us strong. (coughs) That's verses 1 through 11. In verses 12 through 17, the Spirit helps us not to sin. And some of you need to spend some time there talking about mortifying the flesh. (coughs) And some of you need to spend some time go back and revisit that. Verses 18 through 25 says that the Spirit helps through giving us hope. Through giving us hope. And if we can have hope in what's to come, then we can contextualize our life and our struggles. We can put them in their proper place. And we can move forward in a position of faith knowing what's, what God has promised to us. That's super important, you know. You know, the Bible doesn't... Uh, did you guys know that the, the Bible... It, this is an important thing for study. When you read the Bible, the Bible gives us um, antidotes to our, our issues in, in three parts. Lots of threes. Lots of threes in the Bible. And one of the sets of three is faith, love, hope. You can read about this in Colossians. You can find it. You can find this pattern in this chapter. Faith, love, hope. They're crucial. They're crucial. If we do not have hope, then what the heck are we doing? If we don't have hope of our inheritance, then what are we doing? If we don't have hope that God wants to save everyone's soul, then what are we doing? What is the mission? What is it that we're doing from day to day? If we don't have hope that God wants to work in our lives and on our behalf, and that he has things, certain things that are just promised to us, then what the heck are we doing? We have to have hope. And the Spirit um, helps through, through giving us hope. The, the Spirit has sealed us. And it's made us to be hopeful in what the, in what the Spirit has, has made us to be. <clears throat> the Spirit helps us through prayer, intercessory prayer. When we, when we studied that the last time we came together. And then the Spirit helps through transformation. And that's what we're going to look at before we go today in our last 20 minutes together. Okay? Yeah? Can you guys handle that? Some of you are here for the first time and you're like, what? 20 more minutes? Well, this is how we do. I'm sorry. All I've got is 20 more minutes uh, left in my throat. So... Pray for that as well. So our transformation in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. We'll start with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. Sam read this verse for us today. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now let's talk about these things. Okay, let's talk about these things. These things are our struggles and our circumstances and the difficulties that come up against us. These are what the, this is what the things are. And even, even the sins that we struggle with. Believe it or not, God wants to take those sins and make them useful and make them for good and change those things in your life and bring you through that struggle to a place where you come out the other side more mature, stronger, now this promise, we went over this before, but this promise is for the believers. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, then this promise is not for you. <clears throat> There's no possible way that all things can work for your good if you're not in the one that is good. If you're not first in the righteous one, if you've not first been redeemed, then this promise, this is a promise for believers. 
And you need to reconcile the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he wants you. But these things are struggles. So, so we have struggles and we have difficulties. But these things are intended to work for our good. So this verse is a promise for Christians sealed by the Holy Spirit. That regardless of our circumstances, we know that God is working out good in our lives. This is what a good father does. And we need to believe him in faith that he's doing this in our lives. <clears throat> we talked about this in terms of uh, taking a faith position. If you remember the last time we looked at this. That this is, this is about um, whether or not our love for God, remember this, our love for God is from a faith position or a feeling position. Remember that? We talked about whether or not, personally, if, if we're loving Jesus because we're like trying to conjure up the feelings to love Jesus, or we're trying to orchestrate the experiences that make us feel like we love Jesus, or, or do we believe him in his promises and from a faith position love him? And this promise requires faith. Do you believe that the things that you're going through right now, if you believe God, are going to work out for your good? Do you believe that? Because the end goal is in the next verse, and we have to look at this very, very closely. Well, 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 let's take our key point first. We have a key point here. God working things for our good means God working out his image in us. That's what that means. When we say good... A lot of times in our minds, what that means is comfortable. Like when we read verse 28, what we want that to mean is like, we just want life to be good, right? We just want things to be cool. I want the right career. I want the right relationships. I want what I want. And so what we do is we project our feelings of what good are onto that verse. Now, what good is to God is you looking like Jesus. Let's not get things twisted here. Let's not be confused Okay, good is not a worldly good. That's not what we're talking about. Like lollipops are good. Cake. A, a big paycheck. Good. Good things. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is God conforming us to his son's image. That's what he wants. He is working in me to produce in me the character of Christ. And that is what Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is about. So let's move there. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. Now, before, I, ha I hate to do this, but i got to do this got to do this. Heresy has forced me to do this, and so I have to address this issue. Uh, can you bear with me for a second as I get a little theological? Okay, so <clears throat> a Calvinist would read this verse, God loves them, and they would read into it a definition of foreknowledge that is not there. Okay, and so I, I don't want to go beyond what people are ready for today because I think we already got that in 1 Samuel this morning. I think people who aren't really familiar with the Bible this morning, 1 Samuel with Sam could have been really hard, and I don't want to do that to you today. Okay, but I, let's just explain this real quick. Calvinism is a theological position, all right? And I love Calvinists. A lot of my friends are Calvinists, okay? But it's a theological position that assumes God's sovereignty is his primary character quality, okay? When I would say that the primary character quality ascribed to God in the Bible is love. All right? 
Now, it asserts that he has determined all things according to his will from the foundation of the world. Okay, now, now what I mean by that is that God has determined all things. Do you understand? What that does is it negates our free will. And again, I'm not going to get into all the minutiae of this. I plan on writing a blog post about it that for those of you who are interested, you can read about, where I really extrapolate this and make it a little bit more clear. But just be patient with me. So, so God has determined all things according to his will from the foundation of the world. And this would include our, our salvation, meaning that he decided before time that some would be saved and some were destined to hell. Okay, so that's the Calvinist position. That's their theological position, is that from the foundation of the world, before any of us took our first breath, before God had created anything, that he determined that some, in his sovereign will, would be saved and have eternity with him, and some, before they were even born, before their decider even worked, before their brain was even functioning, before they could make a single decision, that they would go to hell. Now, I'm not saying this like this is some sort of fringe theology. This is a commonplace theology. Now, Calvinists use Romans chapter 8, verse 28, as a pet passage to promote this perspective. Okay? And what they do is they misuse the vocabulary. Okay? They project different concepts onto the vocabulary that aren't there. Okay? And the first thing that they do that with is the word for no. Okay? For no. So, let's look at, let's look at the verse. Okay, there you go. So, for no. Now, for no is to, means to know something beforehand. Can we all agree to that? that? That's what it means, is to know something beforehand. But what the Calvinists would say, because they believe in predestination and that de- the idea of determination, they would say that for God to foreknow means that he also foreordained. Okay, now I don't want to get weird, but, but, but you guys have taken basic English classes, right? And so what we have to understand about the word foreknow is that it is a verb. It is a verb. Okay? And most of us believe that a verb means a, a what? An action. But verbs are not always actions. So that's, that's our poor characterization of what a verb is. Verbs are not always actions. Sometimes verbs are what we call static verbs. Okay? And what that means is it's a state of being. Knowledge is a state of being. To know or to think is a state of being. And so this isn't an action word. Okay? To foreknow isn't an action word. What that means is that God before time knew all things. Is anybody surprised by that? That, that God in his omniscience and omnipotence knew everything before he even created time? Does that surprise anyone? So he knew who would be saved. That does not mean that he determines who will and will not be saved just because he knows it. Because his state of being is to know all things, right? Okay, now, this is where it gets a little bit weirder. So, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so what happens here is that the Calvinist would say that foreknowledge means foreordination or predestined. And then they would read the next verse and they say, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Now the problem is if foreknowledge means predestined, then this is a redundant verse. Okay, so let me read it to you the way that the Calvinist would want you to understand it. For whom he did predestine, he did also predestinate. That doesn't even make sense. For whom he did foreordain, he also did free, uh, foreordain. In other words, it's a redundancy. And it just, it just doesn't make sense in terms of the reading. Are you with me? 
Okay, I, I say all this. I, this is, I could do this all day. There are books that are written on this. I can recommend them to you. But my point to you is this passage does not tell us that before time, God determined that some would go to hell and some would go to heaven. That's not what this tells us. The whole of Scripture helps us in this. The whole of Scripture. The teaching that God chooses, only some to be saved, is contrary to the clear teaching of the whole of Scripture. Let's look at a few verses and then we'll move on. Can we do that? Next slide. There we go. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the will, uh, 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 into the knowledge of truth? This says that, that God would have in his will all men to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that all men will be saved, but it's his will that they would be. Now, why would he will something that he's already determined before time that he would not do? It's a contradiction. Okay, he can't. All right? Okay, next verse. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men would count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, praise God. Okay, to us who are not willing that any should perish. His will... Again, is not for anyone to go to hell. That's his will. So I don't know what you do with that verse if you say that he's determined before time that, that some would go to hell. That some would perish. Okay, now let's go, let's use one very, 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 very simple verse that all of us know by heart. You guys know this verse? For God so loved the world. I, this is the first verse I ever memorized. This is the first verse you memorized? Yep. Ever? Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If whosoever doesn't mean whosoever, I don't know what it means. Okay? Now, that's a little bit of theology, but I want to get to you the inspiration of this verse. Let's talk about what this verse really says, can we? And then we'll close with that. This passage tells us that God knew before time began that he would work out the image of Christ in every person who loves and believes in him. Okay, key point, before we break it down. Conformity to Christ's image is central to his worship, his mission, and our victory. And I want to focus primarily, and we don't want to get into all the other things, I want to focus primarily on this idea of our victory. Because this passage is about our, our recognizing that we're victorious in God. That's what this is about. And what this passage is doing is bringing to us hope that we do not have to be owned by our sin. That's what this is about. Is that we don't have to be identified by our struggles. But God is doing something bigger. That he's working all things for our good. Right? right? Remember that context? He's working all things to our good. And so what Paul does here is he takes a moment and he says, from, from, he, he speaks back into, in time from, from the future and he says, you know what? From the very beginning, God knew you. He knew you. And, and when he knew you, he determined that he wanted you to be conformed to his image. And so that's why all these things keep happening. That's why these struggles you face are there. That's why your sin momentarily seems oppressive. That's why your circumstances seem so egregious. Because God is working something out in you and you need not fear it. You need to recognize it for what it is. It's him working out his image in you because before time, he saw you and he knew that you would accept him and he knew that you would choose him and he determined in that moment that he was going to work in every believer, the image of, work out the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in every person. 
So let's read the passage in its whole again. And I've got some verses that I could give you because we don't have, have a ton of time. Romans 12, 1 through uh, verse, uh, 12, 12, 1 and 2. And Romans uh, 2, 5 through 8. I mean, sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 are verses that you can reference to talk about God conforming our mind, taking our mind and making it like His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? But ultimately what we see happening here is that we see the process of God working out all of the wonderful byproducts and blessings of our salvation. Romans 8, 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. And so let's break this down real quick. Okay, Before time, God knew you, Christian. He knew that you would be saved. He knew before the world began who would and would not choose him. He didn't choose you first. He chose all of mankind. That's why he made mankind. That's why he sent his son to die, that whosoever believed on him might be saved. He he is calling all men. But you get to choose, and he saw who would choose him, and so the next part, before time, he predestinated those that would choose him to be conformed to his image. Very simple. For those he knew before time, he determined that they would be conformed to his image. And he was going to do whatever it took to see Christ conformed in them. Okay, now, in our time, in real time, I'm sorry, we're going to have to move fast. I know you hate that when I do that. In our time, he called us. Who was called? Who's a believer? Who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? There was a time in which God beckoned me. There was probably many times that I didn't recognize. (laughs) But there was a point in which I did recognize and I heard the calling, and I knew it for what it was, and I chose him. Okay? I chose him. Okay? And so he called, his calling to mankind. John 7, 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood in Christ, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. This is the beckoning of the entirety of Scripture. God is always calling people to come and take and partake and to drink of, of life. He's always doing that. This, this is what he's done, and he did it in my life, and I answered the call. And so he's called us. And in our time, four, number four, we were justified. For those who are called and respond, he is faithful to justify or save. The word justification basically means salvation. What it means is, remember we've talked about this before, we've talked a lot about justification in Romans. Just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, when God sees me, he sees me as justified in his sight, And I am set apart like unto his son. Does that make sense to you? So so justification, that's actually salvation. He's justified me. I answered the call. He justified me. He made me right in his sight. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, not by determination, not by grace without faith, right? But being justified by faith, my faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a byproduct of our faith and answer to his call. Okay? Now, let's look into eternity future. This is the thing that's promised us, and this is the thing that should excite us the most where we're at, Christian, is that in eternity future, what he's working out is that we would be brought into his full, full, his full transformation. Okay, now listen. Okay, before we close up, throughout all the Bible... Particularly in the New Testament, when we talk about glory, 
We're talking about something that's attributed to God. Okay, you won't ever find in Scripture glory attributed to human beings, except this verse. Except this verse right here. Now, what does it mean? Now, when we talk about, okay, remember, remember when Jesus hadn't gone up to heaven yet? He had resurrected, but he was with the apostles, and he was hanging out, and he hadn't yet gone up to heaven. He says, don't touch me yet, guys. I haven't yet been glorified. Oh, what? That's freaking weird. What does that mean? Oh, that means that he hasn't come into the fullness of his heavenly body yet. All right? Now, what this means for us is that one day we will come into the fullness of our heavenly body. And that's particularly important to me on weeks that I have colds and the flu and I don't feel good. That's particularly important to me to know that one day I will never have to deal with that again. But most importantly, what it does for us is that when we deal with sin, and we deal with difficult circumstances, and we deal with struggles, that we can rest in the fact that God has promised to us that he is going to glorify us in his son Jesus Christ, in heaven, in eternity future. This is a promise for the future that we need to hold on to. Do you understand? This passage isn't some passage that we use and bend to mean some sort of particular theology. This is a passage of inspiration and power. God knows you and he loves you and he loved you before time. And that anything that you're going through right now, guess what? God's got a plan to get you through that because he wants to work it for your good. And one day, you know what? You won't even have to struggle with those things. So believer, this is the promise. What do you do with it? Are you going to believe it? Are you going to take it at face value? About what he's doing in you through your salvation. Some of you, some of you need to get saved. Some of you in this room don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today you need to pray and ask the Lord to come into your heart and repent of your sin. That you might you might be conformed to his image. But you've got to answer the call first. And so so here, here's the deal. I'm gonna read verses 31 through 35. Okay? And then I'm gonna pray. And if you've got something to deal with, then you need to deal with that now. And, and, and during this time of worship, we'll close in worship. But I want to read verses 31 through 35 because I think that they put all of this, all of the rest of Romans chapter 8 into a nice context. So can we do that? Can you guys look on with me? Verse 31. Wow, God, you're, you're going to glorify me in the future. So what, shall we, so what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall, how shall he not uh, with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Who is it, who is it, Christ, uh, who it is that Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again? Who is even at the right hand of God who also make intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword? Now we're going to break that verse down next week. But listen to me. What this is telling us is like, who are you to condemn yourself? Who, who is it that any man would call what God has called redeemed wicked? Who are, who are you to be oppressed and to be to depressed? And hide away in the darkness of your heart. 
Who are you to call yourself sinner when God's called you saved? Nothing can come up against you, believer. Nothing. So we must proceed in faith. And that's the invitation on the floor. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. And somehow I got through all that. I don't know how, but God, I just pray it wasn't just gobbledygook, but that it was that God it meant something and that the hearts of the people in this room this morning heard it the way I heard it when I stood.